Welcome to Firewall. I am Hugo Lindgren, standing in for Bradley Tusk, who is off this week. Um, fortunately, we have a, uh, a Tusk, a core Tusk member, Bob Greenlee, who is a frequent guest of the podcast here today with us. And he's sort of filling in the Bradley role on our usual Tuesday conversation. So uh, hello, Bob. Hey, Hugo. How are you? Hey, everybody. It's great to listen uh, to talk to you. Now, uh, I'm going to I'm going to give a, a short intro to Bob because I actually looked up. I, I know Bob pretty well at this point, but I, I, I still had to look up his title and everything. And it says that you. Um, oh, wait, you changed it. I, I you you said that it was I thought it said something that you were the multidisciplinary practice, but I guess that's no longer the case. You were the COO of Tusk Holdings and the acting president of Tusk Philanthropies. That is correct. Um, you know, titles are nothing but words, but uh, I am I'm responsible for what I always tell people is I'm responsible for quality control. Quality. I make sure that everything we're doing across the the Tusk universe is being done well and uh, that our portfolio companies are getting the treatment they they need, and our clients are getting the quality of service they deserve. Now, um, I want to add one other thing, which is actually which has been said on this podcast before, and I, I don't mean to embarrass Bob, but I, Bradley did say on Firewall that you are the smartest person he knows, which hurt my feelings a little bit. But um, I, I just want to throw that in there so that people make sure that they they do need to listen to this episode. Well, I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> So first question, uh, we're going to talk about crypto, the crypto collapse, um, some of the ramifications for that. But I want to ask one thing straight off the news. January 6th hearings have been going on. They, they, they restart tomorrow or it's actually today when you hear this on Tuesday. Um, what, if anything, have, have the hearings revealed to you that you either didn't know or didn't know was important or that might have changed your mind about something? So I think what the hearings have revealed to me was just how much cross chatter was taking place beforehand and just how orchestrated so much of this stuff was. I think, you know, we hear and we constantly understand that social media is performative, that what we see is like people's off the cuff Twitter remarks are actually pretty heavily scripted. Um, but, you know, when you think of January 6th, the idea was always that this was this impromptu event. And then you realize watching the hearings, and as I understand from the hearings to come, that there was much more organization than was um, than what I previously understood. I mean, I remember January 6th listening to it as I was driving in the car and just being shocked at how things went radically out of control. Um, but now you start to realize that it wasn't just out of control, that there was, there was really malicious intent here. Right. right. And, and how does that affect your ideas about what should what should happen from here. I mean, one of the one of the kind of depressing aspects of it to me is that the it, it, the president is revealed to have been pretty active at President Trump, I mean, um, pretty active in in facilitating and 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 encouraging and and all these things. And yet, the criminal case against him still feels kind of fuzzy to me. Do, do you agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. I this is January 6th is not about the criminal justice system. If it were about the criminal justice system, the attorney general and the courts would be addressing it. This is about the court of public opinion and allowing people who are prospective voters to understand all the facts associated with a prospective candidate in advance. The interesting thing, I, I don't know if you followed this. I mean, it's such a tiny little subplot in, in terms of everything, but there was a you know an assistant football coach for the Washington team who caused like a 
a bit of a fuss by sort of by suggesting that the 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 January sixth was just like a dust up and and why aren't they doing anything about all the sort of police related riots from twenty twenty? Um, there's a kind of like a, 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 a relativism sort of argument there. Um, and what what I what I actually liked about that news event was like I actually think that's what a lot of people believe in America, and to 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 see it and to understand it and to talk about it is important. And he he was actually sort of shouted down. He got fined. He he had to apologize to the team and all these things. But I, I suspect that what he said reveals a certain kind of like core truth about about what a lot of America thinks. I think that's right. Um, I think. You know, I I think people before the January 6th hearings were underestimating just just how real the threat was. I mean, it happened in real time. And and like a lot of things, it's really hard to prove a negative. So it's I think people looked at something that, um, thank goodness, got under control fairly quickly and said this was never such a big deal. Um, But there is no moral equivalence. Right. I mean, an attack on the Capitol and an attack on our elected lawmakers is fundamentally anti-democratic. It's also like that whole idea is crazy because of course people, of course law enforcements and local governments are trying to deal with rioters and looters. If people, if those people can be found, they're being they're being tried and convicted just as well. I mean, that's a it's a suggestion from people outside of these markets that local law enforcement is not actually trying to deal with this situation, which I think is faulty too. Right. Right. Um, Let's pivot hard, as we do on this podcast, to a different subject. Um, I want to talk to you about crypto. This is a, an area that you have some expertise in. Um, and over the past, what's it been, about a month now, um, the, the crypto markets have collapsed. Um, I guess my first question is, is, uh, is this a moment you were kind of waiting for that you were expecting to happen? Has, has, has it surprised you with the sort of quickness and ferocity of it? What are your sort of initial, initial thoughts? Look, my initial question that I've been asking myself after what was really a wild weekend, I mean, crypto went from 21 on Friday down to 17 or 18 at its at its trough, and now it's back up to 20 again. You mean Bitcoin? Are we really? Yeah, Bitcoin. Are yeah. we really, are we really, you know, through the bottom of the trough? Um, and my, my suspicion is we really may not be for a lot of reasons, but um, that's something we can kind of talk about later. What has it... Has it made us, has it been a surprise? It really hasn't been a surprise, I guess. It, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop for a while. And just because we've seen so much speculative stuff and day after day and week after week, we see um, exploits and projects going under and the realization that just tremendous amounts of market capitalization are disappearing. I mean, it, you know, at some point, the market has to respond to those kind of messages. How does it how does it affect the way Tusk is dealing with crypto? I mean, um, it's 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 sort of a, a growing part of the practice. What does an event like this do to the way you're dealing with clients? The way you're, um, you know, responding in terms of the the business climate? Sure. I mean, and and you can say, look, we have a lot of on the fun side, we have a lot of investments in Web three and blockchain companies, and you know, do you what do you think about those investments or future ones? All related questions. Um, I think. At the end of the day, one of the things I um, have been fortunate about having, you know, having worked with a lot of clients in the sector 
is you do really realize that there's a great difference in the sector between what I look at as the economically productive um, blockchain, you know, organizations, groups, call them what they were, projects, um, and some of the fly-by-night kind of grifty stuff that, that you see out there that's causing some of the problems. So, I, you know, I think for me and for us, I don't think we will have a great uh, change in what we're doing because fundamentally, um, you know, what I will talk about on later on the show, I think ultimately all of the blockchain is, is effectively um, a series of investments in tech. And realistically, what I've seen over the last couple of years is the best developers, the best programmers are moving over and migrating to blockchain, which means ultimately that the best new technology will show up in Web3 or on-chain applications. So we're still, we're still fully there. Do you think, you know, one of the things that's obviously true that in, in some ways crypto gets painted as this crazy wild west full of, you know, speculators and, and pump and dump artists and self-styled promoters and all this stuff. But it, it, it's obvious when you when you when you talk to especially the, the some of the top people in the in the field that there's just a ton of a ton of really smart people, really serious people. Um, but was there a mistake made that they that the that the more um, that the smarter people in the industry didn't separate themselves out from the kind of speculative mania enough? So. We say with a lot, you know, we do a lot of work and have historically done a lot of work in emerging technology sectors. And what we generally tell our clients, who are often the best and most reputable clients in those sectors, is you should want regulation. Because if you don't have a market that has some core standards, you're going to get overrun with grift and you're going to spend far more money, far more of your time, and ultimately far more of your attention trying to differentiate yourself from fraudsters and schemes. And I think I think that's what's happened here. And I think now, um, and you know, it's hard because the ethos of blockchain and the ethos of Web three has always been: we should use code to regulate. We should let people who are rational actors make the decisions themselves, and we shouldn't have to trust or rely on government. So there's always been this like fear of regulation, but now it's. You know, now I think people, the rational actors and the good actors in the space are saying, you know what, we actually should welcome regulation because it's the cheapest way. Um, it's kind of a public good that allows us to go about our business better without having to spend all of our time and attention differentiating ourselves. What's amazing is that if it, it, it's very much feels like a kind of a 1929 moment for crypto in that regard, because, you know, in the in the 20s, the whole the whole ethos of the stock market was very similar to to to. Um, to what you were hearing from some in the crypto community uh, up, up till now, which was just exactly that, that kind of like hands off, government has no part in this. You know, we understand markets. We, we, we don't want uh, intervention. We don't want guardrails. Um, and then after 1929, suddenly, um, you know, nobody, your, your average American thought the stock market was a, you know, a huge casino and, and it took years and years um, for trust to return and government regulation was a big piece of that. Yeah, that's that's totally right, Hugo. And the question I've been asking myself is, you know, we always talk about Web3 or crypto or the blockchain universe as kind of one voice. But the question is, who are these voices that are really, you know, waving the flag for for effectively under regulation? 
Um, and, you know, are these voices really the respected part of the community or are these voices, you know, being reinforced by fraudsters who realize that they can make a quick buck off of people who are really not paying close attention? There's a lot of people who are taking this moment to be like, well, I always knew it was a fraud. I always knew the whole thing was was uh, uh, was a was a bunch of scam artists. Um, what's the argument that you would make about why? And I guess partially you've already made it, but I, I'm I'm, I'm going to frame the question a bit. Why should we Why should we still care about crypto? Should like like the people are like, yeah, it's time to write all that crap off and get on with the real economy. Um, what 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 do you say to those people? So I think two parts. I mean, the first part, you know, we already talked about, which is you still see the best and brightest navigating to to DeFi projects and to to blockchain based projects. So I don't I don't think you can write off human capital wherever it uh, wherever it moves. But there's another question too, which is, you know, market inefficiencies are what drove the adoption of a lot of crypto products. And I, when we'll talk about, it, I, I end up talking about it in the financial services sector because I think that's where it's most developed. But you know, I, uh, I have an account at a major bank, and you still see twenty-five dollar wire transfer fees, right? And you know, that's crazy. And your foreign exchange fees still remain high. You still, you retain a lot of high fees. And a lot of slow processing times, you know, like two days to get an international wire across that the crypto community has shown is just um, technologically absolutely unnecessary. Right. So due to that, you know, until these like um, until the sclerotic nature of the banking system changes around, I don't think that you will see I don't I don't think you will see crypto going away. I think a lot of the problems that um that people are trying to solve for remain in existence and, and need to be wiped out or that, you know, the banks can start to use blockchain tools to wipe them out themselves, which I think is equally likely. Do you see on just on the government side, do you see the 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 expertise, the the um, the impetus to, to do what's needed here? I mean, where is the where are the ideas going to come from uh, for, for that regulatory framework? Well, first of all, I, I think that what I've seen is that um, the tech generally and certainly increasingly the blockchain universe, the crypto universe is lobbying a lot in Washington. So my suspicion is that they will eff effectively and increasingly get their viewpoints across on kind of core issues. Um, but I do think I, I think it's I think you can't paint with a broad brush stroke because I think that there are certain core things that even you know lawmakers who are less attuned to blockchain are really starting to get and can understand. I'll give you one example from the arcane universe. You know, in the world of stable coins, and as a stable coin, just to, to remind everybody, is a um, is a currency, is a token um, that is pegged somehow uh, to another unit of value. Normally speaking, the US dollar, although people are looking at yuan, you know, there are there are stable coins that are associated with gold. For example, so there are a number of tools of this sort, um, but among stable coins, which have been the topic of a increasing regulatory scrutiny already this year, there's something like four bills in Congress uh, that are looking at how more effectively to regulate these. Um, there's increasing consensus that what they call algorithmic stable coins, where the peg is is based on a on a model and not on actual reserves, um, that these don't work, and I think. I don't know if you followed it. There's a, a stable coin called um, 
called Terra USDT, um, which lost its peg and effectively folded, you know, within the last month or so. Caused- I, tried, I tried to follow it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it caused. Look, it it caused the loss of forty billion dollars of market capitalization, which is about the same size as KKR's market capitalization. You hardly hear about it because, in part, because there are just so many big losses in crypto these days that people that it gets folded. Um, but what I think people have seen from that and from that kind of huge jump is that algorithmic stablecoins just don't work. It's really hard in practice to to offer something that's pegged to a unit of currency without having hard asset reserves to back it up. And that's the kind of thing that lawmakers can get perfectly fine. There's other stuff I've been How well understood was that by people in the in the field before it blew up. Was was there a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of distrust of this concept pre-existing the, the crash? You know, it's hard. The, the it Algorithmic stable coins played on the wish fulfillment of the crypto community, right? I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, but the crypto community really wants to believe that code can solve hard human problems and can solve hard problems with economics. So they should say, in the same way that they said, let's trust in code rather than trusting in government because we can't really trust in government anymore. Algorithmic stablecoins say, let's trust in code instead of hard reserves because we can use we can use formulas to solve the same problems that other people have been using to solve reserves. Like that's intuitively to the person who's an enthusiast in the sector, it's intuitively really appealing. Um, I think to hard-headed realists who've seen runs on the banks from the you know 1850s on, God knows from Babylon on, um, the idea that you have something out there that's that's pegged to a currency without assets to back it up just seems in you know just absolutely innately dubious. So I you know it's like it's preying on hopes and wishes to some extent. Um, we're gonna trend, we're gonna do another of our pivots, but th- this one's gonna be a bit of a softer pivot. So. What is the what do you see as the relationship between the crypto markets, the crash we're experiencing, and other markets, stock market, uh, bond market, um, the the larger economy? Um, is there is there obvious um, correlation between these things? Um, do we see this being a? I mean, I'm not asking you to predict the future course of the economy necessarily, but is is this a is this a a big problem for for the American economy? I I think it's still a relatively small problem for the American economy. One of the things that, you know, we fail to take into account when we talk about uh, crypto and DeFi and blockchain generally is when we talk about their market caps, these are at these are assets or or projects that are global in sphere. So, you know, the US exposure to some of these things, even on some of the bigger projects, is sometimes fairly minor. Um, you know, coming out of um, the, the implosion of uh, Terra Luna, which was a Korean project, um, we also see a Singaporean hedge fund that was deeply involved in them and another network that imploded called Celsius called Three Arrows Capital that's liquidating. Um, and these are all, you know, this is these are large stores of value, and and you know, capital flows increasingly fluidly globally right now. But a lot of this capital is in Asia, right, and is not in, is not U.S. capital. So the effects may be muted. Um, back to your question, I think. Look, the the big the single biggest thing that I think the crypto community and the blockchain community has to reckon with um, is the kind of the laying bare of one of its founding 
kind of one of his founding myths as, as being fundamentally economically wrong. And that's this idea that somehow Bitcoin is, a, is an alternative store of value like gold. And, uh, you know, just to, to remind everybody, you know, the ar argument has always been, well, gold has no inherent value. It's only valuable because it's scarce and because people find it attractive. Um, so, you know, Satoshi so Nakamoto, when he created Bitcoin, said, let's do something that has artificial scarcity so that it, we can use it to store value um, in a way that can't be manipulated by governments, can't be controlled by anybody else, uh, is independently there. Now, what we've seen over the last series of months is a store of value like gold in places where the stock market has increased volatility, people tend to move towards stores of value, which is why the price of gold has actually increased while the stock market's been imploding. Um, what we've seen from kind of blockchain and crypto is that it's moving very much in tandem with NASDAQ. So it's something that people are not looking at it like gold is a store of value. They're looking at it like effectively a tech stock, which is probably right by and large. I mean, this is it really is new technology. The benefits that it gets are technological. But the store of value argument seems to be gone. So, so continue our pivot into the broader kind of economy. There, there's a, a, a consensus emerging that we are heading into a recession. Um, is there? I'm a, I'm a little surprised at at the um, at at this at the rather hard turn into this over the last you know over the last couple of months. Even even before the the, the crypto collapse really started, you had Jamie Dimon talking about look our. A hurricane is heading. We just don't know if it's a, a big one or a little one. Um, you have a lot of really negative um, uh, sort of papers and reports circulating in, in in Silicon Valley among among some of the big VC firms. Like, there's this kind of like, are, are we almost like like willing this to happen at this point? If if with all this talk of like um, you know a hurricane, a bit you know a big a big problem up coming up. You know, I mean, so much of all of the cyclical nature of economics and, and of our economy is driven by, you know, people's interpretations and people's intent. And as you said, ultimately people's will, right? So yeah, to some extent, I mean, it's to me, at least the, the main street approach to this really doesn't feel like we're in a contraction mode. And, you know, this is also where you're sitting. I mean, if you're, if you're sitting in some place where you just got laid off, you certainly feel like recession is coming. Right. But I went to pick up um, barbecue for lunch yesterday and they were there's help wanted signs everywhere and they were struggling to have enough people to hire. So, you know, you start to see at the end of the day, if we're still struggling to hire up in, in on Main Street, it's hard to see that, you know, that we're going to have such a job loss that it's going to trigger a broader recession. So I, I don't know. I'm you know, I don't live in the place where there's this tremendous number of tech jobs that are that are getting you know decimated i live in the place where everybody's still looking to hire and it's hard to see a recession in a really tight labor market no it's it's, it's really true I, I i drove out to long island the other day and i was looking um uh at the there's a as you drive into into southampton there are all these you know sort of commercial establishments that you know do the pools and the pesticides and the you know all the all the services for for the big houses out here. And um, every, I mean, there was just a, a almost comical row of help wanted signs on everyone, you know, we'll train like no right. necessary, you know, all these things. And these are, I mean, some of them anyway, looked like pretty good jobs. Um, and I'll bet out here, the, the, um, 
you know, the, you, you can, you can make a, a, a decent amount of money, like taking care of someone's pool, um, which is, you know, uh, and if, if, if those are available, I mean, it's, it's tricky out here because people can't afford to live, um, live in the Hamptons and, and have those sorts of jobs. So that's, that's part of the problem. And I kind of wonder if that's part of the problem in the country generally is that there's just a kind of misfit right now between where people are and what they need and, and the jobs that are available. I mean, I think that's right. You know, the, I'm sitting in Chicago, um, as you probably know. Um, and one of the big political issues out here is lifeguards and public pools. So every summer, uh, Chicago has, you know, 70 odd pools um, and they're staffed by high school students who are working as lifeguards. This year, all the all the people who would otherwise be lifeguards have jobs everywhere else. And like only nine percent of the jobs are filled. Uh, there's something like the city's moved to giving like six hundred dollar signing bonuses. They're looking to find people from out of the city to come in and take the jobs. I mean, it's just it's an unprecedented tight market right now. And you're right. It could be people earning jobs they want. You could work but, on your tan. I don't think you could do your job very easily from a lifeguard chair because you, you know, you'd be distracted. But I could see it'd be a nice thought has crossed my mind. <laughs> I mean, the signing bonus is attractive. Right. As as long as I can, as long as I have enough charge on my on my laptop, and you know, I can like multitask. I think I can get there. I've done the CPR course. I I thought about it for sure. What are the industries? that you would be most concerned about heading into a recession? I mean, I, 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 kind of, I kind of fear not knowing that much about it, but I fear that there's a kind of false stability in a lot of businesses coming out of, of, um, of, of, of the pandemic where, where, you know, we think like, oh, everybody's, you know, everybody's flush, but, but are they? Are, there, are the restaurants strong enough to get through another extended period of, of you know, of, of, uh, of, of poor business environment like i you know it's i'm i'm just concerned i'm wondering what how you see it so I, I always think that the people that are hurt the hardest in the recession are the the businesses and sectors that have the least resources or have been hit the hardest in the last recession so restaurants obviously are that you mentioned hugo are like a classic example absolutely crushed by covid working to restart themselves, crushed by supply chain issues, crushed by inflation because they're, you know, they're heavy buyers of, of raw materials, have now labor shortages, just absolutely hard. Their you know, leadership, their ownership are completely burned out. If you hit now a recession and people lose their purchasing power, then they have to re-pivot again. They have to figure out how to make do with less, and they've probably burned out a lot of their reserves dealing with the COVID issue. So restaurants, for sure. Um, I think other sectors that you start to see are, are ones that have just taken a consistent pounding or are hard to prop up. Um, and you know, some of the some of the places in the supply chain that have just been pounded the last year, I continue to see that sector as as you know facing some real headwinds. Um. Bob, we, as you know, um, we often, uh, Bradley and I talk about books he's been reading, and I asked you about that in our email exchange over the weekend. You mentioned two that you've recently finished, uh, Dawn of Everything and Father and Sons, and you had um, uh, some insights in terms of both of them and their kind of real-world implications. So maybe we should start with Dawn of Everything. Maybe start by, by explaining a little bit of what the book is. Sure. So Dawn of Everything is like a, I don't know what you call it, a grand history 
of prehistory. So it's it's a couple of authors who are not are in but not of necessarily some of the fields of archaeology, um, you know, anthropology and the like, who really take a broad reappraisal of the social sciences and the thoughts of the social sciences to look at what human social organizations looked like in prehistoric, but still a time that's uh, available to the archaeological record. Um, and that they were pushing really hard for this thesis that uh, that the teleology that we've seen of the march towards organization, greater organization and kind of greater systemization and its and its limit natural limitation on human freedom was anything but. And that there were alternative alternate what they're really trying to say is that alternatively, um, there are different ways of being ways of organizing that are, you know, allow greater innate freedom um, for individuals. And that what we've seen is, you know, as the kind of the buildup of industrial society and the regulatory state um, is a kind of as a historical you know, it, not an accident, but just one of many possible paths. It's highly contingent. Well, you got your real life fire engines there in Chicago. I know. I, it's, it's exciting. It's city living at its finest. That reminds me a little bit of a um, of the of the Sapiens book. Um, some of those arguments sound familiar to me. Um, yeah. This sort of trap of agriculture, you know, that this idea that we would be all better off if we were sort of wandering the savannah, you know, as, as hunter gatherers, that kind of thing. Is it, is that sort of the idea? It, it's sort of the idea. It's a lot, there's a lot of it that is in responsive to, but critical of Harari and sapiens. Uh -huh. and the notion that, you know, sapiens looks at, has a very scientistic and, you know, when you're dealing with ultimately a cognitive scientist, it's maybe not surprising, but it has this determinative notion that certain, you know, realities of human consciousness, of human cognitive tools um, make it such that that we would have developed in a certain way. Um, you know, this idea that, you know, we really work best in bands of up to 150 people, and that's the capacity of our knowledge. Um, you know, the, you know, the dawn of everything in a lot of ways fights against that and says, you know, a lot of this that people look at as determinative is actually really contingent and it's just contingent on a, a set of you know historical accidents so it is it's it's like if you like sapiens you would definitely like this book um i would you know my gut is it comes at it from a this notion of moving towards greater freedom is ultimately and look all histories are ultimately a reflection on the times in which we live Right. And that's that's what they should be, because that's the value that we draw from them is is taking the lessons and applying them to the time that we're in. Um, this is kind of has a collectivist um, kind of uh, leftist vibe to it. And that's that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit compelled. Sometimes I think that in service of that, that some of the arguments are a little overwrought. But that's that's what you get from these types of books. Um, the other book, Father and Sons, that's that's a you, you took a deep dive into to Russian literature. Yeah, I you know, I so I get I uh, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. It's like more cheapness than anything else. I have an audible subscription. And I do a lot of my reading is listening. And it was one of the ones that you get free from the catalog. So I was um, I dove in because I hadn't dove in before. And I found it really, um, really poignant and really like telling for right now. So for people who haven't haven't read it, it's a um, 
in mid 19th century work, um, Turgenev is like a little bit more politically moderate uh, than some of the more aggressive 19th century authors. Um, and he, the, the real crux of the work is around a young generation of, of effectively nihilists um, from like the landed, landed gentry and aristocratic classes of Russia in the mid 19th century versus the liberal, um, the li their liberal um, parents, effectively, thus the fathers and sons. And it's really a, it's a meditation politically on, you know, the progression from liberalizers, who is the older generation who, you know, looked at freeing their serfs or, you know, making some liberalizing changes to the, the younger, more progressive, more nihilistic, in this case, generation that is, is really looking at things in radical new terms, um, which is, again, really telling of our times. Um, so uh, I've un I understand, by the way, that you've been, um, uh, you've been lobbying for the opening of a P&T Knitwear bookstore in Chicago. Is that true? I look, I would love one if we can figure out how to, how to make the model work. I'm like working on the names and locations as, as we go. I was in P&T two weeks ago and I loved it so much that I'm, you know, I'm redoubling my efforts. Good. Bob, this has been great. Thank you for, uh, thank you for stepping in and I look forward to having you back on with Bradley soon and I uh, hope you have a great summer. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Nice to talk to you.